Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's all kicking off this morning in the fictional land of Brexit. Jacob Rees-Mogg is busy calling Mark Carney a failed second-rate Canadian politician after he and his cronies at the Bank of England predicted all sorts of Armageddon in the event of a no-deal Brexit. The dire warnings of house price slumps and market crashes have been dismissed as project hysteria, and they probably are. Meanwhile, uh, Theresa May is in front of a committee uh, in the House of Commons uh, in which she's explaining why uh, she believes that her deal is the best deal that you can get. Are we going to have to listen to this nonsense for about another month or two or three, maybe? Uh, Meanwhile, back in the real world, Matt Hancock has finally had a good idea. The health secretary has worked out that it's time for the NHS to be more like McDonald's. Just imagine if they were running a fast food empire, no one would get fed and a Big Mac would cost about a million quid. But in all seriousness, there is a lot to learn from the American hamburger chain. First off, they could treat us all as customers instead of victims. They could utilise technology in the accident and emergency department properly and they could streamline all their outpatient services and make them more like the takeaway business. Now, I'm sure you've got some great ideas as to what you could do to improve the NHS, and we want to hear them. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll tell you where the best place to live in Britain is, and the results may surprise you. And we'll find out how Alexa might soon be predicting just how long your relationship will last, uh, and why Mead is making a comeback as well. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Lots more to talk about, including the police coming up in a little while, because it turns out we were talking about the police earlier on this week uh, and how ridiculous it is that they're having to waste so much of their time dealing with people uh, who are suffering mental health issues, mental health problems. And we found out uh, that all uh, but five people uh, have made so many thousands of telephone calls just to one particular police station, uh, which is mad in the first place. But it now turns out uh, that in the Metropolitan Police in London, Britain's biggest police force, only about one third of all crime reports get uh, completely and utterly dismissed after one telephone call with the victim. We'll talk about that and why. Apparently, if you're a shoplifter, you'll get away with it, basically, as long as you only shoplift about 50 quid's worth of stuff uh, or less, which seems a little bit unfortunate as well, doesn't it? 0344 499 is the number we want you to call us on this morning, though, because we're going to talk, first of all, about the NHS, and we're going to start things off uh, with Dr Louise Irvin, South London GP. Uh, she's from the National Health Action Party, uh, because Matt Hancock, uh, who's a relatively newly installed health secretary, uh, has not exactly exactly set the heather on fire with any of his great ideas. But today uh, we are told that he believes it's time perhaps for the NHS to learn something uh, from McDonald's, the big American burger conglomerate. He thinks that if the NHS was more like McDonald's, where the people who work there apparently are very happy, uh, then he would be very happy as well. Let's find out if Dr Louise Irving agrees. Hello, Dr Louise. A very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, is Matt Hancock right here or has he kind of gone slightly off uh, piste, as it were? Oh, Matt Hancock, I mean, he's got a problem because he's going to be facing an even worse winter crisis in the NHS this winter. And he has to come up with some 
sound bites and things to sound like he's got some ideas. He comes out with these ridiculous notions mm. which actually don't address the real problems facing the NHS, the NHS. Right. What do you think he means, though, when he says this? Because, I mean, he's not a stupid man. He must have some clue as to what he's likely to get as a reaction for saying something like this. I mean, I suppose what I, I'm imagining what he means is that McDonald's is a very well-run, sort of a very efficient organisation where everybody knows when they walk in the door what they're going to get. Well, when I read the article, he actually was talking about McDonald's uh, leadership training. Apparently, yeah. they, they fast-track um, their staff into m- uh, management positions. Um, and he said that the NHS needs more leaders. Now, I think... Um, so that was the main point he was right. making. I think there's, there are two issues here. One is that his government has absolutely cut the funding for medical and nursing and all other allied health professional training. So, in fact, we don't have enough doctors and nurses right. and others to actually provide care for patients. Right. I mean, um, he seems to be wasting an awful lot of money on agency nurses who come in because there aren't enough nurses to staff the thing in the well, first place. You know, I mean, maybe he ought to uh, take a bit of advice from McDonald's uh, himself and get the get some leadership in government. Well, yeah, I, and the other thing about the NHS is it spends millions and millions on um, consultancies yeah. from peop- um, organisations like PricewaterhouseCoopers, McKinsey's, etc., right. so, uh, who are providing some supposedly some kind of leadership, which I think is actually very damaging and very wasteful mm. of resources. So I think there is an issue about looking at how, how the NHS is led, and I think that uh, nurses, doctors and other staff should have a greater role in saying how things are, t- are to be done, and I, I agree with that. Mm. But for, to do that, we actually need to have enough doctors, nurses, etc. We've got over 100,000 vacancies in the NHS. And that's one of the reasons why the experience for many patients has deteriorated because, you know, the the A&Es are overwhelmed. Um, uh, GP practices like we cannot give appointments to people in time because we don't have enough doctors and nurses, even in our practice. Mm. Yes, I'd like to ask you about that, if I may, because you're a GP in, in a busy part of, uh, of the world. I imagine South London's been yes. pretty, pretty overcrowded with people. I mean, uh, what is the problem with, with GP surgeries at the moment? Because we hear sort of differing stories of, of uh, complaints from patients who say they can't get an appointment until next week or from two weeks from now unless something really ill uh, has, has gone wrong and they have to go to a, an A&E. Um, is it just the fact that you've got too many patients signed up, not enough doctors? Which is it? Yes, it's very hard to... Uh, few. Very few GPs. There are fewer GPs per person than there were in 2010. Mm. So we, we've lost GPs, and it's we. Our practice is. I don't want to talk about my practice particularly, but just as an example, mm. is is um, by all standards a good practice, and yet we were unable to recruit uh, a new doctor, um, although we advertised uh, for months. Right. Um, uh, it's very uh, other practices. There's been. Re- Vacancies in, in London, South East London, where I work, there, there are practices, good practices, with, with advertising for the last year for replacement doctors. We can't get the doctors, and it's very hard even to get practice nurses. And what do you think the reason is you can't find somebody to fill that post in, in your particular surgery? I think that general practice is perceived now by many young doctors as being a hugely, um, the workload is. Um, massive. Right. Uh, people work many long hours, much longer than their paid hours. They're, they're still here till 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, finishing off, looking at the, the, the reports, looking at results, writing the referral letters. And it's become quite a... Ironically, the less, the fewer doctors, the fewer, the more understaffed you are, the, the workload is still there, so that has to be shared up amongst the remaining staff who have even more to do. So mm. I, tip, I regularly go in at the weekend um, when it's quiet and just get on with my, with, well, my admin just work. Just with admin work, yeah, because yes, obviously exactly. you must not have time really to do that because we often also hear complaints from people whenever they call in to this show anyway that you know when they do see a doctor it's only usually for three or four minutes at a time they very rarely get an awful lot of time to talk about anything well well i always and many the doctors in my practice we give the patients as as much time as they need and that's why we often run late of course Mm. people complain about that but we do give and we have a lot of people with mental health problems and sometimes they need you know 20 30 minutes to talk about things so we do try but that's another reason why i think we always run late i think the thing is there's a huge amount of need and a huge uh, amount of good that we can be doing for, for people but we do need the resources 
to, to be able to do that, whether it's in primary care, whether it's in hospitals, whether it's in mental health care. And I, I, I think that it's the, ultimately the responsibility of the Secretary of State for Health to have an overview of what's really happening in the NHS, why we are all struggling, staff are struggling so much to provide uh, a good service for patients. And it boils down to being grossly understaffed. Hmm. It's also underfunded. We're spending less on the health service now per person than we were last year and the year before. And all the promises of future funding are only going to make up for something like £13 billion of deficits that the hospitals have and other things. It's, it's very unlikely. But we do throw an awful lot of money, don't we, at the NHS? And I'm, I'm afraid to say that I have often said on this show uh, that money doesn't, doesn't necessarily hold the key and the answer to everything because we do put an awful lot of money in and we don't get much back out in terms of efficiency. Well, I mean, the, 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 a, a GP practice gets paid something like £120 per year per person on our mm. list, and that is to provide all care from cradle to grave, preventative care and acute care and all kinds of other things. So I think if you compare how, we spend, how much we spend on health in the UK compared with other Western European countries, we spend far less per person on health care. So, you know, you're talking about huge, you know, 60 million people that have to have health care of all kinds. Of course, of course it's expensive, but we're not... As I said, we're not spending more. We're spending less than comparable economies. Yes, it could be more efficient. And I go back to all the money that's wasted on management consultants and um, the kind of uh, what I would call the cost, the transaction costs of the market, all the bidding and tendering and all that stuff that's going on, which is extremely wasteful. I think the money needs to go to frontline care. It needs to go to increasing the staffing numbers because it's dire in many hospitals right. now. There are huge um, rotor gaps with one junior doctor covering two junior doctors' work. Um, it, it's, it's really hard for some so of the how, nurses. So how would you, as a, as a doctor, advise Mr Matt Hancock to uh, improve the recruitment process? How would you get more doctors in um, well, in the short term? He needs to increase funding for, 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 for the NHS, real terms funding. He needs to actually look at the workload and the working conditions and the unsafe working conditions for many doctors and nurses and other staff where they're running, they're just on their knees sometimes, just desperate and unable to um, even think sometimes. So he needs to actually make sure, look at, listen make to Make it a more attractive nurses, proposition. In other make words. it more attractive. Listen to them, find out what the issues are, look for remedies, increase the funding, increase recruitment, make it once again a fanta the fantastic job it is. It's a fantastic job being a doctor or being a nurse, being working in the caring professions. But if, he's, if it's become uh, untenable, if people are leaving because they just cannot c carry on coping with the stresses of the work. So you've got to address the work stress really, really seriously and make it the job that people really want to do because there's so much dedication in the NHS and it is so fantastic in what it can do, but, but it's really struggling now. Okay. And it's his job to actually deal with that and not come up with stupid sound bites. <laughs> OK, well, stupid sound bites, of course, is what the government does. Dr Louise Irving, thank you very much indeed. Uh, she says that Matt Hancock needs to stop with the stupid sound bites, needs to come up with some better ideas than saying, for example, the NHS should be more like McDonald's. But we're going to talk now, though, to Professor Sir Robert Lechler. Uh, he's the president of the Academy of Medical Sciences because they've also put out a report today calling for a culture change in the NHS, uh, saying that health data uh, and medical technology communities uh, should be improved and we should ensure that the the NHS now benefits from new technology. Uh, Professor Sir Robert, a uh, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. I don't know if you were able to listen to uh, to Dr Irvin there. She was basically calling for more money uh, and a change in the kind of working practices inside the NHS. Is she right? Of course she's right. So, so I think um, none of us would want to deflect attention from some of the pressing needs in the NHS uh, which include uh, continuing to put in more resource uh, for frontline services and all that. I think everybody would agree about that, and I suspect that uh, the Secretary of State would probably also agree about that. And I don't think that these comments uh, about McDonald's should or were intended, I would hope, to deflect attention from that need. I don't think um, they were, and I think he has a point in the sense that, you know, I know he was referring specifically to their kind of leadership um, uh, yeah. debates and yeah. their leadership challenges and all of that. But however, I mean, if we were all treated much more like customers by the NHS, I think people would be happier with that. Well, uh, I think the point, I mean, nor are we debating whether McDonald's is good for the nation's health, because that would be a totally different topic. <laughs> well, that would be. Uh, and some people have pointed out that that was perhaps not the greatest uh, example of the company that he could have used. A questionable choice. 
Um, but I think, no, the point he was making was one about uh, leadership and investing in training mm. uh, people in leadership. And that, with that, I, I agree. I mean, I think I cut him some slack on that particular point. Um, and the reason that I think it's so important is that if you can be sure of one thing mm. looking ahead, it is that healthcare and the way we deliver it and the technologies that support it and the diagnostics that are available to us and the treatments that are coming down the line are all going to change a lot. And so if we're going to need to adapt, then what adapting needs is strong and, and effective and skilled leadership. So mm. I think that the need for leadership is absolutely uh, spot on. And I suspect I don't know a huge amount about McDonald's, but maybe they do invest well in their staff. And that's something that, of course, we'd be well advised uh, to do. Well, whenever you walk into a McDonald's, and I don't do it very often for the same reason that most people don't do it very often if they can help it, the bottom line is that everybody is doing a job, everybody seems to know what their job is, and everybody seems relatively happy uh, doing it. Now, you don't always see that when you walk into a hospital uh, or indeed when you walk into a doctor's surgery. Uh, I think that's a fair comment. And uh, it's a very staff satisfaction and having a happy staff is really, really important to patient care because Mm. there's a correlation between clinical outcomes and how, how satisfied and, and happy your staff are. So, but that's, we're straying back to the you know, investment and frontline services topic if we're not careful, because uh, that is, a, I'm, I'm, I'm not deflecting attention to that, it's absolutely vital. I'm coming back to the leadership point, and if you just allow me to mention that the academy uh, of which I'm a president is just launching a new leadership program that we're quite excited about mm. that is designed to train people to lead not only within the NHS but across sectors, so with crossing industry, NHS and universities. And I think that is uh, the kind of leadership that we need that's really adaptable, that's really flexible, that understands different sectors and can move the NHS forward into ways that will allow it really to adopt the technology that that the Secretary of State is very enthusiastic about and a real champion of, and make sure that that is deployed Mm. to deliver better patient care. So I think think I'm going to sort of support his point about investing in leadership because I think it's going to be so essential. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this show's only three hours long, so we haven't got enough time to actually debate all the things that could be better in the NHS. And I'm not bashing it here, but I'm just saying that, uh, you know, I I do worry sometimes when people call for more investment and more money, uh, that it's all just going to some big black hole and it's not being terribly well managed. And it's, it's different depending on which part of the country you're in. It's different depending on what time of the day it is. You know, I mean, there are so many variables that surely we need to somehow think about using technology to actually sort of um, smooth things out, if you like, to make things more consistent in the whole of the country instead of in parts of it. Yeah, well, of course, you're right. Uh, so, you know, the postcode lottery, so-called, is indefensible. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of work going on to try to standardise practices. And the, the elements of the NHS that I have direct dealings with, which are three leading foundation trusts in, uh, in central and southeast London, I can assure you they're very well managed, very well led, uh, and working really hard to do exactly one of the points you were making about really good customer service Mm. management. So, you know, you're quite right. When you turn up to a a GP surgery or an outpatient clinic, someone should say, good morning, how are you? I'm very glad you're here. Yeah. Uh, I think all that stuff really does matter. Um, But uh, alongside that, uh, we need to make sure that the levels of investment are sufficient. And as you rightly say, that technology is being used to make the service the most efficient possible. No, indeed. Uh, And there is, yeah. Sorry, carry on. We're on the same page there. No, no, I I was just going to say that there's still, there are still some slightly outdated practices and how paper dependent sometimes some elements of the service are. Um, And uh, there should be electronic records that means wherever you pitch up, uh, in the country, in fact, someone could rapidly access uh, your, your your data and, and find out uh, what they need to know about you without having to uh, dig up pieces of paper or get paper records. No, indeed. Professor, thanks very much indeed. Professor Sir Robert Lechler there, uh, President of the Academy of Medical Sciences, with uh, some ideas for how to make the NHS better. You'll have plenty of those ideas as well. Uh, Harry's granddad says this on Twitter. Mike, I'm at a loss to see how the doctor blames HM government for recruitment. Surely that is the responsibility of NHS management. Uh, HM government are not recruiters. Clearly there is the money, as there are vacancies for which they have the budget. So it's all about the NHS management. I think you're absolutely right to say that. Uh, there's absolutely Absolutely no reason to blame the government because the government are putting loads and loads of money in uh, and getting very, very little out in return. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. You know what to do. Here's the number, 0344 Coming up, uh, we're going to be speaking about why millions of millennials are going to swap the tinsels and the Father Christmas figures and the trees uh, for unicorns and mermaids as they're going to give a festive makeover uh, to Christmas so that it doesn't offend anybody. I mean, for heaven's sake, please give me strength. Uh, a couple of tweets for you. Scott says, tell that bloke on the phone it would be a referendum or this de- on this deal plus civil war as the three choices. Well, uh, that bloke on the phone uh, was, in fact, John Rental, the chief political commentator for The Independent, uh, not just any bloke on the phone. Let's go to Scunthorpe. I'll talk to Samantha. Hello, Samantha. Yeah, morning. Morning. What would you like uh, to tell us? Yeah, on the subject of uh, the NHS yes. recruitment mm-hmm. and our difficulty in recruiting, you know, now they, when I did my training back in the early 90s, you got a bursary. Right. And obviously, before that, you actually you know, worked at the hospital, didn't you? So in both cases, you were paid. Right. But now, they have to go to university. Well, I know when I did my training, there was a lot of mature students who wouldn't have been there but for the fact that they were receiving some sort of wage. Sure. I'm sure that must make a difference to, uh, you know, people wanting to go into nurse training really so I, th- I think also a lot of them have got wise Samantha some of the nurses anyway as as, as we heard from uh, our friend whose wife runs a doctor's surgery um, yeah. you know a lot of doctors have worked out that they don't have to go into business to, to be a doctor they can just mm-hmm. be a locum they can work when they want where they want same way as a nurse can now join an agency probably make more money and actually just work when they want to work yeah, well, that's true, but then you don't get holiday, you don't get holiday pay. I mean, you don't sure. get, uh, you know, your pension. Do you? And the other thing is you never know where you're going to end up. And well, true. As, as an agency nurse, you can be sort of used as the, uh, oh, you know, we'll give we'll give that patient today to her because she's not normally here and they're a bit hard work, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. So. No, absolutely right. No, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a terrible mess. But what do you make of the whole McDonald's analogy? Do you think that there's something in that, that they could be a bit more kind of user-friendly? Yeah, well, I think that, I don't know about that, but I do think that, you know, as well as money being paid through national insurance, perhaps we do need to look at adding money in, you know, some sort of policy. I mean, they do that, don't they, in Europe? Yeah, in they do, places. yeah. They do, but I'm wary yeah, but of I just do, throwing... But I also think that money needs spending more sensibly, and, and when you have big organisations, you always get one. Yes. 
No, that's very true. And that goes for private organisations as well. Samantha, thanks very much indeed uh, for your thoughts. Thanks very much indeed for your call. Uh, You can join in the debate, of course. This is after Matt Hancock, the health secretary, came out and said that he thinks that uh, the NHS should be run more like McDonald's. Now, he was being quite specific about the leadership aspects of all of that. But uh, equally, I want to hear from you. Uh, You know, what could the NHS do that the uh, McDonald's does very, very well indeed? I was making the point earlier that if the NHS actually ran McDonald's, you'd probably never get a Big Mac. You'd have to wait about four years for it. Uh, and it would cost about a million quid. 0344 499 1000. Now, we've been talking about a lot of different things this week on this show, uh, not least, of course, uh, whether or not certain parts of this country are better than certain other parts of this country. There's a new story out today, uh, in fact, which tells you precisely where the best place to live in this country is. And guess what? It is in Lee on Sea in Essex. And we've got Councillor Carol Mulroney to tell us why. Uh, Councillor, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank, Thank you, you for, for speaking th- to me. Not at all. Thanks very much for coming on. Leon C., the best place to live in Britain, apparently the happiest place to live, the most picturesque. I mean, you know, the list of, uh, of compliments goes on and on. Well, that's wonderful, and it's nice to hear, and it's nice to see it being celebrated because we all celebrate it here. Absolutely right. Now, tell us what the great highlights of Leon C. are, because I'm, I'm sorry to admit, I don't think I've ever been there. Well, shame on you. I know, I'm terribly sorry. It's, well, you see, <laughs> um, I sort of go south for the weekend rather than east, so I'll have to head out that way at some point. Yeah, well, Leon Sea is um, it's quite a, a smallish community, but it has a huge community spirit. There are no end of organisations, clubs and and things that people can get involved in. I think we, we, um, we are good because we have a whole range of ages. We've got quite an elderly population, mm. but we've also got a very young population as well. Right. And, and all the spectrum in between. But we've got so much going for us in terms of we're on the water side, which everybody wants to live by the sea. Mm. Um, we, we've got an historic old town. Um, Heritage is my big thing, and, and it, it's a wonderful place to, to be, to see the boats with the fishing fishermen. You know, we still have a working fishing fleet, cocklers and, and fishermen. So it, it's an interest place. We have a thousand years of history um, and it's all there for people to find out about and see. But when you come away from the old town, you find we have um, a wonderful shopping environment. We have lots and lots of individual shops, um, privately owned cop- uh, coffee shops. Um, there's always somewhere for people to go, for people to meet. We've got an enormously thriving uh, community centre that's run by the town council. Um, where we have about 2,000 people a week go through the doors to various organisations, meetings mm. um, and events. So, you know, it's, the town has got a real buzz about it. And it's also, I feel, because um, I live right on, on top of the town almost, um, it's, it's a safe place to be. Right. You know, it, it's, I have no problems walking around in the evenings or anything like that, and I'm sure that other people feel the same. No, it's absolutely right. Because people don't often think of Essex really as a as, as seaside resort type county, do they? <laughs> they think of it as sort of places like Basildon and, and you know, going into uh, uh, the sort of central parts of Essex and birds of a feather and all that kind of thing. They don't really yeah, but, think yeah, of it. Well, whereas, whereas actually Colchester, which is in, in Essex, is one of the fam- oldest cities in, in Britain, isn't it? Roman absolutely. city. Uh, and presumably there's quite a lot of Roman sort of heritage on that side of the coast as well. Absolutely. The whole of Essex is, you know, we we are such a diverse county in that, you know, come south to us and you've got the seaside or you've got a huge coastline going right up to Mm. uh, Suffolk. And and then inland, you've got these historic towns like Colchester, Braintree, Chelmsford. Um, You know, they don't sound like um, places that grab your attention, but they have a wealth of information and history. Um, for people to go and visit and see. So, and Lee is a little microcosm of that. And, and uh, as I say, we've got a thousand years of history and we're happy to share it with everyone. No, of course. And I imagine you've got some great fish and chip shops being uh, on the seaside oh, itself. Yes. But have you got any particular <laughs> delicacies that people in Lee on Sea uh, oh, specialise in? You, you can't come to Lee and not eat cockles. Really? <laughs> and how's the best way to eat them? Because I think I've had them sort of cold with a bit of vinegar. That's right. Well, that's the way most people eat right. them. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have um, stalls down in, in the old town by the waterfront that you can go and buy your dish of cockles with the vinegar and, and, and pepper and that and, and eat like that. Mm. Um, 
and, and that's where people come. You know, they come down. We've got some nice public houses down there. Um, people come along on a Saturday or Sunday. And obviously this summer has been wonderful for the weather. Mm. Um, they can sit by the, by the waterside and watch the boats and watch now, uh, a bit late now, but uh, the Brent geese that we have come down in September, October. Mm. Oh, very nice. And what about sort of the B&B setup? Is there lots of places to stay? Uh, no, that's a little bit more difficult. Okay. Um, you know, Lee is a residential town, basically. Right. Um, it's grown up from the, the, the riverside, so the waterside, up to the town, and it's mainly residential. Um, but obviously, we're very, very close to South End, um, and uh, there are places in South End where people can stay, and it's a quick hop on the train you know, five minutes down to Lee. Yes, indeed. And in fact, you've got an airport at South End now, haven't oh, you? Oh, yes, we've got an airport. It doesn't sound like you're too keen on that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, people have to get about, don't they? They do. So, um, you know, yes, we have an airport. It's a bit far away, and it is a little bit of a bone of contention sometimes with the noise of the plane. Yeah. But, uh, well, I've seen it described as London South End Airport, which well, that's is what they call it, yeah. slightly bizarre, because, I mean, uh, if you're flying in from somewhere like Brazil and you think you're flying into London, you're going to get well, a bit of a shock, Well, they call Luton, London Luton, don't well, they? Well, they do, so. yeah. They yeah. Do, and Stansted, which is all yeah. a bit of a, pra- a pain exactly. in the neck as so well. Exactly, so all designed to confuse, I think. But, Indeed, yeah. absolutely. So what are you doing as a, uh, to, to celebrate your uh, award as being the happiest place in Britain? Well, it's come at an absolutely wonderful time for us, leading, leading up to Christmas, um, because tomorrow um, is our light, Lee Light. Oh, is it? OK. And this is an event that takes place every year, uh, the sort of last Friday in, in November, mm. where we have our Christmas light switch on. Um, we have a, a programme, a parade, um, which we have quite a lot of entries in, come through all the way through the shopping streets. And, um, you know, there are things on at the community centre for the children as well. Okay. And there are various events out along the parade. So um, that, that will start at oh, 5 o'clock nice. tomorrow afternoon. Very nice. And so uh, have you got a local celebrity that you favour to, uh, to put the lights on? No, no, the lights don't, we don't have a switch on because the high street is, is quite um, a narrow area and it creates bottlenecks so oh, okay. what we did what we have to act on police advice sort of thing and their advice is just have the light don't on have any people. fun at all that's usually the police no no, no 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 <laughs> it, it'll be great fun we get thousands of people and everybody has a great time all right brilliant well listen congratulations well done councillor carol mulroney there from leon c the happiest place in britain uh, i can tell you about a few other happy places as well uh, loughborough apparently uh, gets a nod richmond upon thames gets a nod macclesfield gets a nod edinburgh uh, is in there farnham christchurch in dorset monmouth uh, in wales where our favorite mp david davis is from leamington spa gets a mention skipped in Yorkshire uh, and up in the northeast of England funnily enough it's not Sunderland that gets it it's Hexham uh, as the happiest place in the northeast of England so there you go uh, lots lots more to come coming up uh, in the next hour we're going to be talking about shoplifters because apparently uh, if you shoplift anything less than about 50 quids worth of stuff there's a pretty good chance you will get away with it and uh, nobody will actually bother coming after you for it uh, because the shops just can't be bothered isn't that extraordinary 0344 a 499 1000 on the subject uh, of the NHS and McDonald's we'll keep taking your calls as well uh, my point says I wish the opposite McDonald's should learn from the NHS and give out free burgers. Well, they give out very cheap burgers from time to time, don't they? So I wouldn't be at all surprised uh, if uh, when the NHS does learn from McDonald's, uh, they start to actually maybe make a little bit more money uh, instead of wasting so much of it. They start to be a bit more user-friendly and treat us uh, like the customers that we are, the paying customers that we are, because after all, we are paying through the nose an awful lot of money, despite what Dr. Irvin said earlier in this uh, particular show on this particular hour, uh, that actually we are putting less money in than most other countries in the Western world. It can't be that true, can it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So picture the scene, right? You're sitting there having a nice glass of wine, a nice candlelit dinner uh, and your Alexa starts to analyse the conversation that you're having uh, with your other half. Now, uh, you might be having an argument, you might be having uh, a a, a talk about going on holiday together, you might be having an argument about who uh, is going to feed the dog or who's going to take the kids at the weekend or whatever it is. Uh, Alexa is going to suddenly start analysing the words that you're saying and the words that you're getting back in the response and is going to tell you whether or not uh, you can actually break up your relationship because of what you're saying and how you're saying it. Let's talk to Joe Hemmings now, who's a psychologist and dating coach. This sounds horrendous to me, Joe. Very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Yeah, it sounds equally horrendous to me, Mike. <laughs> um, I mean, the problem is, yes, you know, it can listen to what you say and how you say it and give a view, but it doesn't know why you're saying mm. it. It doesn't know what kind of mood you're in, what happened, what triggered that argument, whether it's a one-off. I mean, 
you know, it's a pretty desperate place we're in if we're relying on, uh, you know, a little machine like Alexa to sort of tell us whether our relationship is, is going to last or not. And well, yeah. Well, you'd, I mean, you'd, really, you'd like to think, would you not, that judging by the responses you're getting from the person sitting opposite you, uh, you'd have a rough idea of how it's going. Indeed. And if you got to a place where you're having a lot of arguments and perhaps you needed some counselling, some human intervention who would understand psychologically where you were coming from and what was going on, that might be one thing. But, you know, if Alexa started telling me that my relationship you know, it was kind of all but over because I was mid-argument. I'm afraid I'd probably throw lecture against the wall. <laughs> yeah, well, don't do that because I did that with my uh, I did that with my router once and I had to get a new one. It took me ages to get it from Vodafone. But anyway, um, what about also if they're collecting this kind of data anyway? Um, that's also something to be slightly concerned about, isn't it? Because what effectively it means, I mean, we we had this conversation a few weeks ago with somebody else, I think, yeah. on, on the air that you know, if you don't, if you're not careful, you don't switch off all your microphones on your phone. Basically, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp and uh, um, Instagram and various other Google, I think, are all collecting the things that you're saying, and they're, they're throwing adverts at you based on what you're talking about, which is really quite yeah. scary, isn't it? It's really scary. I mean, you have to know on your phone how to switch it off. I mean, you know, it happened to me a few weeks ago. Because yeah. I to think it was probably a conspiracy theory, you know, it's ridiculous, they're not listening out for us. But I called out to somebody in the street that passed me. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I had, oh, blah, blah, had tweeted something a few minutes later. Oh, really? I thought that's a massive coincidence, or it heard me, and wow. decided I was interested in whatever he was saying. So... I kind of begin to think they are, you know, there is, a, effectively, they are listening. Certainly, we know online, you go on to something immediately, you know, that banner comes up, sort of displaying it to you because you didn't buy it, or even if you did buy it, there it is. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of listening and going in, and once it gets to your relationship, I mean, it's like a nosy Parker. Well, exactly. Well, it's like, some annoying, it's like some annoying friend that follows you around, just making remarks at you every time you say anything. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's just the <laughs> desperate statement first. Uh, and I'd really like not to see it happen. Well, indeed. Yeah. And the other thing, as it was pointed out to, to, to me just a few moments ago, what if you're, you know, if it's collecting data on you personally and listening to everything that's being said in the house, what if you're watching EastEnders or something and, you know, some storyline comes up, does, does it know that that's not you or or not? Well, it's supposed to have voice recognition, so I guess it's supposed to think it's not you. Mm. But the thing is, it's so unsophisticated at the present time, and I'd be terrified if it ever got sophisticated enough to say, you know, do a job better than I do counselling clients, but right. it's possible. Um, it's just very unsophisticated, so it's going to be clumsy and cloggy, whatever it says, mm. um, and, and, and intrusive and probably wrong. Yeah, well, yeah. right. And, and I mean, you know, if you're going to take all the fun out of dating somebody and going out with somebody by kind of basically trying to predict how it's all going to work out, this kind of ruins the whole point of it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I presume you've got to have quite a few arguments to build up some sort of picture of you before it says it, because otherwise you're just having some silly row about something besides your relationship isn't worth continuing, even though you've been, you know, blissfully happy for the last, say, six months. <laughs> yeah, um, well, indeed. And what about... There's a lot of bust-up relationships knocking around. And what about this other business about what we are likely to be doing in the future, that by 2025, our genetic code will somehow make uh, make it possible to predict what sort of sexual chemistry we're going to have with each other? Well, yeah, what I call swabbing for love. <laughs> Swiping for love was bad enough. Um, I mean, look, it, it's kind of possible. Actually, there is no real scientific basis for pheromones. It's based on pheromones, a lot of this, uh, and smell. There's no scientific evidence for pheromones, whatever anybody says. There are in mice, but nothing's been proven in humans. Um, yeah, compatibility, lifestyle matches, blah, blah, yeah, we kind of understand that. But, yeah, I'm sure DNA could kind of point us in the right direction. It might help, but it's departing further and further away to make your romance in a lab and give you, yes, D463 is compatible with you. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's taking it so far from romance and so far from that kind of feeling that you meet someone face to face, let alone on a dating app, which, as I said, seems bad enough before. It's just, again, it's a horrible thing. Yeah. And I might be old fashioned, but I don't want to meet some set of numbers via a, a DNA testing kit that they think 
I will fancy. But isn't that the way things are going as well, though? Because we now have sort of a generation or two of people who expect everything to be instant, who expect everything to be done uh, when they want it to be done, you know, so including presumably their love life. Because the whole point, surely, of romance is it's not very scientific. But if you try and make it scientific um, and make it into a kind of a quest, because now's the matter I've decided, you know, I'm 27, I've decided it's time to meet somebody and get married. I mean, I know people that used to do that in the old days, uh, but now you can actually do it. Well, no, you can. And the truth is, there is some science to not much dating, but to attraction. There's there? definitely science there. Oh, yeah. And so what people might do is use it the other way around and say, well, I really like this guy, this girl. Uh, we're getting on very well. Let's do the DNA in reverse. Let's see if we're actually compatible. Now, if it turns out you're not compatible via DNA mm. um, or something called major histocompatibility complex, MHC, then you might think, well, I was going so well, but now scientifically I've been told that <laughs> well, I'm not suitable Just for by it. using those very words, which I'd like you to repeat for the purposes of killing off any kind of romantic notions I might have had, um, <laughs> you know, that's precisely what is wrong, isn't it? Yes, that word is major, or that phrase, major histocompatibility <laughs> complex, even I can't say it. Yeah. Uh, it regulates our immune system. It's thought to unconsciously influence our mate choice. That's okay. what it is. And again, it, it works in mice. Um, but you know, not they don't have a particularly exciting romantic life, mice, as far as I know. Mm. Uh, don't know if we know whether it works in humans yet. Perhaps it does. But again, it's used as an option, as a bit of a, even a fun option, or as a really good option, perhaps for in terms of fertility or having uh, babies that are healthy. That's one thing. But, you know, stripping back romance, stripping back what I call proper chemistry, which is just seeing someone and thinking or hearing them and thinking, that's my type. Mm. And to be told actually they're not uh, in a science lab would be, I think, quite a miserable place to be. Well, indeed. Because I was going to say, I mean, obviously I bow to your superior knowledge of these matters. However, um, you know, the point of looking across a crowded room at somebody and seeing somebody that you don't feel anything for and then seeing somebody next to them who you absolutely just can't wait to, to go out with, uh, for, for no apparent reason that you can think of, um, surely there, there's no science in that at all, is there? Uh, there is, there is a, a science in lust, yeah. I mean, you can kind of see certain things happen uh, in your brain and when you fancy someone. I mean, there's science behind it, but not a kind of DNA-matching type science. Oh, OK. It's just when your brain lights up when you fancy someone, and you, you, that's why we get, you know, flutters in our tummies or we feel a bit sort of jittery or get a bit pink in the cheeks, get a bit breathless, all those things. Something is happening. Adrenaline, basically. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I have no right. idea what you're talking about. It hasn't happened to me for such a long time, Joe. that I've forgotten what it's okay. like. Well, when it happens again, you'll recognise it. But that's <laughs> a hormonal thing, and that is not to do with anything to do with your DNA or, I'm not going to say that phrase again, NHC. No. That is simply hormones reacting to you seeing somebody. So there's science there, but not this kind of science. Okay. And finally, I suppose, um, it won't be a million miles away from then using DNA DNA uh, to match yourself up in terms of your progeny and uh, what sort of success you're going to have having children, if that's what you want to have, and how successful your uh, your children will be in life and what they might wish to not carry as a genetic disease and all of those things. I mean, we are going to be moving into what the Daily Mail would call Frankenstein medicine, aren't we? Well, we are. I mean, you know, in America, it's still pretty, it's, it's pretty commonplace to do that. They have far more genetics. Uh, matching tests in terms of the health of their babies than we do in the UK. I mean, mm. they go through a barrage of it as as a as a regular thing. So that is happening, and sometimes that is a good thing to predict the health of child. Sometimes it's very worrying for couples because just about everything gets tested, so it gives you something else to be anxious about. Um, you know, that could be could be useful, of course, with anyone with you know uh, genetic preconditions. I get that, but when we get to love and romance. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, quite right, too. Absolutely. Joe, thanks very much indeed. Joe Hemmings, their psychologist and dating coach, telling us uh, how there is quite a lot of science involved uh, in the perf in the process of, of becoming attracted to somebody. Uh, but do we really want something like Alexa uh, con convincing us or telling us precisely whether uh, we are going to have a successful relationship with somebody uh, or not? Uh, Richard says, my Alexa sits next to the Mac where I watch TMTV. I now know why my Facebook ads are full of divorce lawyers and hitmen. Well, that's very funny and very interesting indeed. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And pour me something tall and strong, make it a hurricane before I go insane. It's only 
the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, 03444991000. Lunch is fast approaching, I have to say. Uh, but I might have some lead uh, for a drink at lunchtime rather than the usual uh, glass of beer or perhaps a glass of wine. Uh, we're going to talk to Luke Hutchinson now, director and beekeeper at the Northumberland Honey Company, uh, which is in a very beautiful part of the world, not far from Hexham, uh, which was, of course, voted the nicest place in the northeast of England, over uh, over Sunderland, believe it or not. Luke, a very good uh, morning, good afternoon to you, I should say. Yeah, good afternoon. Now, ho- now, 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 you all know a lot about Vikings coming from that part of the world because the Vikings <laughs> all landed over over that way, didn't they? And came down to Hull and all the rest of it. I've been to the uh, the, York, the Norvik uh, Vikings centre. Um, yeah. Tell us about Mead because apparently uh, the Game of Thrones has become so popular that Mead is drunk in that show, and loads of people are now drinking Mead. I'm told. Yeah, absolutely. Game of Thrones has done the mead industry uh, a world of good, really, um, in terms of just getting the name of mead out there. Right. A lot of people that come to us and, you know, say, you know, they've either had mead before, we, we ask them about their experience of mead, and often it's been quite a sweet, syrupy, sickly experience. Um, but, but a lot of mead makers are now making mead in a really nice, approachable way, right. sort of even dry. So we'll be getting sort of what I would have termed sort of uh, yuppie mead or millennial mead or something <laughs> like that. Absolutely, yeah. The Millennials are coming of age and, and starting to uh, starting to be able to drink, and they're kind of looking for something a bit different, perhaps yeah. to what the parents, you know, opposite to what the parents used to drink, even. Mm. Um, so our a sort of new alcoholic drink that's available to the masses is, is becoming mead, and it's becoming more popular. Okay. We're getting a lot more meaderies. Basically. And do you drink it sort of like beer in the sense of, of that kind of amount, like mm. a, in a half pint or a mm. pint, something like well, that? Well, do you know the beauty with mead is that mead is any honey alcohol, so you can make that from any percentage you like all the way up to distilling it so it can be like a mead it can be like a cider it can be like a wine or even like a champagne like the the, the sparkling meads that we do okay um, so it, it, it's really it, it's a blank canvas and that's kind of what is creating such a buzz if you pardon the pun. yes no absolutely and, and how alcoholic is it by sort of percentage of volume well our ours is 12 percent, so it's on par with your sparkling wines and yes. champagne because that's the method that we do it in but equally, there's some really good meads down at a low alcohol percentage, mm. um, sort of 4 or 5%, all the way up to 17 18%. And there's even a couple of producers distilling. Um, so you can have that as you would do a spirit. OK, because, I mean, traditionally... I would always see, you'd see bottles of mead in kind of farm shops maybe or mm. if you went to visit a castle, they'd have it there, you yeah, know, that kind yeah. of thing. You'd probably buy it, I don't know, at the Tower of London shop. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how easily available is it sort of retail-wise? Um, it's it's uh, quite difficult, actually, and especially as a new mead producer, it's difficult getting it across to retailers that people are actually after it. So mm. it's kind of, uh, it's becoming more widely available, but it's actually just getting it across um, to retailers that it's a very good thing to stock because traditionally, and people will be, listening to this now saying oh i've got a bottle of mead and it's sat on the shelf i got halfway down it and, and don't want to touch it anymore because it was quite an unpleasant experience oh really but actually yeah there's, there's a lot of more meads that are very approachable very friendly as it were yes and, and easy to drink um and they are meads that aren't sitting on the shelves now and they are being drunk um by the masses really yeah and, i've got actually i've got a tweet here now from somebody called rob who's just sent me a picture which he says it's coming from english heritage and it's yeah. uh, it's an advert for mead um yeah. and there's a glass there's a sort of champagne flute uh, yeah. and then there's a, a tumbler of it as well it looks kind yeah. of orangey colored yeah is yeah. that is that is that always that color can you can... it can be any color like it depends very much on the honey so if you imagine wine yeah. different grapes give you different wines so mm. different honey will give you a different color to the mead you can even you, it, honestly it's such a blank canvas in terms of how you can make mead this is also kind of one of the things that's difficult to get across to the general public that right. mead can take many many forms okay. so you can drink it like a viking really strong syrupy uh, 18% alcohol or you can have it you know lighter and more approachable. Mm. And I mean, as far as the the process goes itself, it's fermented rather than distilled, right? So it's not yeah. a, it's not a spirit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is the odd mead available that is distilled, um, so there is that to mention. But generally, it's fermented honey. So we're not using grapes; we're fermenting honey and spring water. And it's the sugar that's in the honey that is the base that that gives you the the alcohol. The yeast eats the sugars in the honey. Uh-huh. So that's why when you actually ferment these, you'd think it was sweet, but actually imagine honey with all the sweetness removed, and that's effectively what you get left with in some of these meats. It's sort okay. of the floral aspects of honey. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I, I, can't, I don't think I've ever actually had it, but I mean, I've got some people suggesting you can drink it cold, but you can also mm. mull it as well. Do you have yeah, it warm? Exactly. Yeah. The, this is the great thing about meat there's no hard and fast rules so you can warm it up you can put spices with it you can right. get spiced meats 
what we do, it's very much an expression of the honey because we're beekeepers. So all of our mead is produced by our own honey. So we're effectively like a vineyard, mm. but without grapes. Okay. So there's, there's no hard and fast rules with it, but ours is more of an expression of the honey. And so, I mean, do you sell it in a shop there? Do you sell it online? Yeah, we, we sell it online. So we're Northumberland Honey, um, and, and that's easily searchable. And, um, and we sell it directly. But also we do have um, various uh, shops up and down the country. So places like T-Bay Services and Gloucester Services, which are sort of higher-end farm okay. shop services. Right. Um, and a lot of, you know, it, it's becoming more widely available as, we, um, mm. as, as the mead industry grows. And how much per bottle would you say it costs? <laughs> Well, ours, ours is probably at the higher end, at sort of 35 to £30, pounds because we're talking about two years Money. to make a bottle, actually. So two it's a years? Long time. Yeah, exactly. So time as well is a crucial ingredient with mead. So ageing mead is, is very... It rounds things off and makes things a lot more, um, more approachable again, and it brings out a lot of the floral aromas of right. the honey. Um, but equally, you can get it all the way down to sort of, you know, for a, a, a few pounds for, mm. for a very low alcohol uh, mead. So it depends on the alcohol percentage. Okay. So, I mean, would it be something that, say, for example, if you've got a bottle of it, a bit like wine for dinner, mm. you would drink the whole bottle? I mean, yeah, with... exactly. If you're talking 12%, then, yes, that's that's perfectly acceptable. You okay. know, we encourage responsible drinking, of course. So ideally to share. Um, but um, but there's a lot of mead. <laughs> you don't want to go on some sort of Viking rampage after drinking <laughs> too much mead, <laughs> exactly. do you? Exactly. You would probably need a drinking horn <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. So how did you get into this uh, business, Luke? Were you yeah. always into beekeeping or what? Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm a beekeeper, effectively, and my wife, she is a scientist by extraction, so she's a PhD. Okay. And effectively, when you get a beekeeper with honey and a scientist together, effectively, you get sparkling mead, which is what we do. Very nice. Um, so we're, we're, the thing that makes us unique is we are the only ones that are producing a champagne method mead in the UK. And there's actually only an, another producer over in the States in San Francisco, so we're quite rare beasts really okay and is the consistency of your sparkling mead is it is it like a sparkling wine or is it a bit thicker yeah, yeah exactly no it's like sparkling wine because okay. we're, we're not adding tannins to it so it's nice and gentle and also um it, you know it, it, all of the sugars are fermented out of it so it's light it's delicate and actually it's you know a lot of people would um say it's very much like a sparkling wine or a champagne Okay, well, it's fascinating stuff. Luke, thank you uh, for joining us and thank you for giving us that little education on me, director and beekeeper at Northumberland Honey Company. But according to uh, all of those people who know English Heritage, uh, which is the country's largest retailer of the drink, apparently said that sales of mead have risen by an average of 10% year on year for the past three years. Apparently there's a mead-themed cocktail bar in Birmingham. Uh, where apparently people go uh, to try all kinds of different sorts of mead. Some pagans go there for occasionally, looking for a selection uh, for their weddings. Remarkable, isn't it, what goes on in this country? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.